everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. I am here with two very special people, Brenda Davis and Corey Davis. Brenda Davis, RD, is one of the world's leading plant-based pioneers and an internationally acclaimed speaker. Widely regarded as a rock star of plant-based nutrition, she has been referred to by Veg News as the godmother of vegan dietitians and was the 2022 recipient of the Plantrition Project's Luminary Award. Brenda's work focuses on ensuring that everyone who wishes to be plant-based can succeed brilliantly. She lives in Alberta, Canada with her husband, Paul. Visit her at brendadavisrd.com. And Corey Davis, MBA, PAG, is a professional agrologist who has worked in natural resource management since 2012 and has been a lifelong advocate for animal welfare and environmental stewardship. His broad range of experience and diverse degrees encompassing business, the sciences, and intercultural relations have given him a unique integrated perspective on sustainable practices and their effects on human health and well-being. Corey lives in British Columbia, Canada. Now, Brenda, I've known you for a very long time, and <laughs> I I hold you on the highest pedestal. You're just an awesome, lovely individual, and you know so much about nutrition. And personally, I don't think you get all the credit that is due to you. That's Aww. just the planet that we live on, but I'm just bowing to you. Okay, this Aww. is an audio podcast. People can't see, but I'm bowing now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and thank you so much, Karen. That means the world to me. I, I am, am very honored and I feel the same about you. I'm so grateful for what you're doing to spread the word. We all do what we can do. Right? Exactly. We all do what we can do. And you and Visanto are just great resources. I have all the books, the comprehensive vegan. I go to it all the time. I'm happy to have a PDF of it so that I can go to it on my computer and check things from time to time. And now, in addition to talking to you about this new book, Plant-Powered Protein, we have your son, Corey, who I just learned I met a long time ago, but I don't remember when you were much younger. <laughs> That's right. And now you're a professional agrologist. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, you said it perfectly. Agrologists provide all kinds of advices and services to agriculture and environmental science related initiatives. For example, agronomy is the study of soil science. That's within the field, within the scope of agrology. So it's really related to environmental science and agriculture. Well, we need you. And for a long time in this vegan movement, we were talking about cruelty because we know the cruelty is to animals and to humans as well is terrible in our food system. And there was not a lot of knowledge or we just didn't have enough good representation on the environmental and agricultural side to promote our mission. So I'm glad you're out there and we're going to learn a bit from you in this next hour. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm just wondering before we really get started, what it was like growing up as the son of Brenda this nutrition dietary guru who only eats plants. <laughs> I have a lot to say about that. I am incredibly privileged to have a mother like mine who has just been so encouraging, motivating to me throughout my whole life. She was one of those people who always sees the best in you. Mm -hmm. And it really brought it out of me, I think. And, and so for that, I'm really grateful. 
With that said, I also learned a ton of incredible cooking skills <laughs> from my mom. And for that, I am also grateful. So it's been such a wonderful experience. And thank you, mom, for always providing me with the support I need to cultivate my passions and desires and follow my path. Thank you. Uh, Corey, were you raised from birth this way or was it a transition? The family, mom, went vegetarian when I was one year old. So mm. that was, you know, too young to eat meat. <laughs> I would say. And so, yeah, I was raised vegetarian. And then slowly, I would say around eight or nine years old, mom started really moving towards more of a vegan diet. I'm not sure if that's quite accurate, mom. It was around that time from when I could remember it. And I had a little bit of leg time. She was really, you know, it's up to me what what I eat. But in the household, this is how we're eating. And slowly I transitioned to a vegan diet, early, early teens. Okay, sounds good. Let's jump into this book, Plant-Powered Protein. I was speaking with your co-author, Basanto Molina, and we covered a number of different topics. So one of the things that just surprised me after being a vegan for 35 years and vegetarian for longer as well, is that protein is still an issue that needs to be covered and needs to be talked about. It irks me. It bugs me, but it's the way it is. Right. And so thank you for writing this book because obviously people still don't get the message. What is the message? The message is that we, you know, to me, the message and, and Corey will, I'm sure have uh, some words about this as well, but for me, from a nutritional perspective, the message is that not only is plant protein adequate for humans, it's superior. And we've, we've for, long, for a long time, we've judged the quality of protein based on its amino acid profile relative to various indicators of, you know, ideal ways of making sure a baby rat grows. You know, all sorts of things. And, and, and one of the factors that we haven't considered is there's the nutrition part of it from a perspective of ensuring adequate essential amino acids throughout life. But the other part is the protein that we consume can impact our risk of chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And so that's also a part of protein quality. To me, to be a high quality protein we need, you know, the food needs to, to be, we need to tick off the boxes for both of those. And the evidence is so overwhelming that plant protein is superior in terms of reducing risk of disease and promoting a health long-term that I think really the evidence is in and people just need to, to recognize the various ways we have of getting protein from the plant kingdom. And it's really not that difficult. I know that there are some people working on getting plant-based nutrition as a question included on medical exams, because that's an important thing to do so that plant-based nutrition is taught in medical school. But what about with dietitians? You know, dietitians have known for a very long time, or, you know, if, if they're in a reasonable program that's, that's teaching what needs to be taught, 
um, that all plant foods contain all nine essential amino acids. There is, there are no plant foods that are, you know, devoid of any of the essential amino acids. And, and in fact, animal products, meat and so forth, contain all the essential amino acids because at some point along the food chain, the, the animals ate plants that, that made those amino acids. All nine essential amino acids are made by plants. It makes no sense to assume we can't get them from plants. It's where they come from. And so I think that people need to understand as well. Well, I know a lot of dietitians who don't. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, many of them are in hospitals yeah. where people need the best information they can to get out of the hospital. And yet they're, they're not fed what they need. It's changing, especially in some cities. That's but exactly what I was going to say, Karen. It's starting to change. And, and I think the education is starting to change as well. So when I was in university, um, this is, we're going back 40 years, we learned not a lot about plant-based nutrition. We learned that vegetarian diets were risky and vegan diets were downright dangerous. And that was pretty much what we <laughs> learned about plant-based nutrition. And we learned that you needed to complement proteins and a lot of things that we very shortly after I graduated learned weren't accurate. And, and so we've known for 30 years that you don't have to complement proteins, and yet it's still being spouted, uh, which is just shocking to me. I, I mean, we, we've known this for an awfully long time. Well, I remember in 2006, when I went through a romp with advanced ovarian cancer, that I was lecturing from my recovery room and my hospital bed to the doctors and the dietitians about nutrition and what not to give me and why they wanted to serve me certain things. It was uh, it was an interesting time, but it is it is changing. And this book that you have written probably should be in all hospitals in the hands of all dietitians, right? Oh, that would be that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, we have to figure out how to make that happen. Okay, so some of the things I want to focus on today, specifically with you, Brenda, I want to talk a lot about protein and fitness. The Santo and I covered some other topics, but this is one I want to focus on. And then with Corey, with your expertise, we want to talk a little bit about protein and the environment and choosing the most environmentally friendly proteins. And there's been a lot of controversial stuff out there recently about that. So I think it's going to be pretty interesting, right? So in your book, there's a lot of charts and formulas where we can figure out how much protein we need and based on who we are, if we're a baby, <laughs> if we're a toddler, if we're a teenager, if we're an adult, if we're a senior. And we can focus a bit on seniors because, well, I'm a senior. And, and uh, yeah, I'm just about there. I'm 64. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm having a big birthday in a couple of weeks. Oh, and happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> on Earth Day. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> right? It is. And we found that uh, seniors need to consume a little bit more protein. And in your book, too, you also talk repeatedly throughout how plant-based eaters need like 10% more than the numbers we're seeing. And perhaps you could speak on that, too. And then we'll get into the whole fitness thing. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So what about this? Because I hadn't seen this before, that plant-based eaters need a little bit more protein than omnivores? Yeah, well, it's really, really simple. So when, when you consume a food with a lot of fiber, 
some of the protein goes undigested into your stool and you lose it. It's just a digestibility thing. So plant foods are, are somewhat less digestible than animal products because animal products don't contain any fiber. You know, we probably lose on average about 10%. It's not a huge increase, but when you look at the RDA for protein, 0.8 you know, grams per kilogram body weight, you would up it to 0.9. Now, now, that having been said, if you're a person that eats a lot of very low fiber protein rich foods like tofu and mm. soy milk and uh, peanut butter and uh, veggie meats like the veggie burgers and so on, you probably don't need to add that 10%. But if you're one of the sort of real tried and true whole food plant based uh, eaters where you're eating, you know, a lot of um, whole legumes and and whole grains as your, you know, your main uh, sources of protein, then adding 10% makes a lot of sense. And there's nothing I can do about that. Like if I chew better or blend it better. Actually, that's a really good question. If you blend, uh, then you really probably are, are compensating quite a bit. You'll definitely absorb more. Okay. So that's something that can be done. But but the reality is, if you look at the amount of, of protein that people are consuming, so a woman on average needs 46 grams a day, a man 56 grams a day. Well, the studies that have looked at, at average intakes in really health conscious individuals, um, vegans average over 70, vegetarians are over 70. Uh, most Western diet eaters are around 90 or 100, but health conscious omnivores are probably around 75, 80. And so we're all way above what we need. So adding that 10%, we probably already get that extra 10%. I know I sure do. Okay, good. So let's move on. Let's talk about athletes or just fitness in general. Now, athletes, clearly they burn more calories, so they're going to need to consume more calories. But you had some discussion in the book that I think athletes would be interested in how, how to maximize their performance yeah. and some supplements that might be helpful. I want to talk about muscles and bones. And both of those things, the, the thing, you know, you already said it, athletes eat a lot. <laughs> and, and so yes, they need, you know, it's estimated 1.2 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. Um, if they're, I mean, we're talking, we're not talking, you know, active individuals, we're talking competitive athletes, and competitive athletes need about 1.2 to 2, depending on whether or not they're resistance trained athletes or they're endurance athletes, it'll vary. But the thing to remember is if a person's eating 3000 or 4,000 calories, getting that amount of protein still probably only 12 to 15% of calories. So it's, it's really not, not that difficult. You know, a lot of athletes are very, very protein focused. And so they're you know, consuming all sorts of protein powders and, and these sorts of things. For some athletes who are consuming, you know, lower amounts of calories or who are preparing for a competition where they're trying to get ultra lean and so they've cut back their calories a lot, some protein powders may be helpful for them during those, those times. But generally, most athletes don't need protein powders. They just need to eat to be focused a little bit if they're purely plant-based on some of the higher protein plant foods to meet their requirements. So the legume group and, and seeds, some nuts, but seeds are a little more concentrated. 
um, just eating, you know, those foods at most meals would would cover their bases. I think a lot of people like to think that they're athletes and maybe they're not really, maybe they work out, maybe they work out enough to keep themselves physically fit, but they're not really a competitive athlete. But at the same time, they want to think like they're eating and getting the supplements and the protein that a real competitive athlete would need and they're going overboard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not necessarily an advantage uh, to put it, you know, to put it mildly. What I would say for those people is their requirements, if they're pretty serious um, at, at fitness, maybe a tiny bit higher than the average person, but not a lot. And so a person like that may want to aim for a gram per kilogram body weight of protein. This is an important point too, is that that recommendation, the 0.8 or 0.9 or one gram per kilogram body weight is for healthy weight. So if you weigh, you know, 250 pounds and you're 80 pounds overweight, you're not basing your requirement on the 250 pounds. You're basing it on your 180 pound healthy body weight. So that's an important point. For most people, if you think about your healthy body weight and you do the calculations, your protein requirements are not that high. And it's really quite uh, easy to meet those requirements. And so you're active individuals, you, you know, you may want to be a little bit conscious of protein, but you really don't want to go overboard and you have absolutely no need for protein powders generally. There are exceptions to that rule. Some people just have a difficult time uh, meeting nutritional requirements, whatever requirements they are. Some seniors, for example, may, may benefit from some of these things, but, but for most people, uh, whole foods will do the trick quite adequately. <laughs> I don't think I'm going off topic. So forgive me if you think I am, but a friend of mine just reached out to me and was asking about osteoporosis. She is a vegan or near vegan, eats pretty whole food plant-based and she's a runner and is at that certain age of 65, was just diagnosed with osteoporosis. Now, I don't know if she was, I don't even know if she ever looked to see how she was doing before. But I'm wondering, how does protein play a role if it does? And yeah, and, and that, this is such an important topic because when you look at chronic diseases and, and risk in, in people who are vegan, you know, heart disease and cancer and diabetes and, and, you know, GI diseases and hypertension and, you know, all of these things are, our risk is significantly lower than the average omnivore. But osteoporosis, uh, no. <laughs> so that our, our risk is actually increased. And, and the reason is to me is really simple. We're lighter, uh, generally we're leaner. And so people who are lighter have le often less bone density or less bone <laughs> than, hmm. than a very large person who builds bigger bones. That's part of it. And I think that what we need to, to understand is, is that Part of um, a maintaining strong bones over time involves a lot of nutrients. I mean, of course, we think of calcium and vitamin D. And for many years, we thought protein was a disadvantage uh, in terms of bone health. And so the, the advice for years was, you know, keep your protein really low because when you eat, when you eat uh, protein, it causes you to urinate out calcium. 
And yes, it, it does that, but it also enhances your ability to absorb calcium. And, and if you look at the weight of the evidence, protein actually comes out as being slightly favorable for bones. And the studies that have looked at um, comparing, you know, uh, um, vegan women who eat, you know, more protein with vegan women who eat less, the women that eat more actually have significantly better bone health. And so as vegans, uh, protein, getting adequate protein is important for maintaining strong bones throughout life. So that we know now that is no longer a debate. We know we should be meeting protein needs to retain strong bones. That's the bottom line. We need a lot of nutrients for bones, but protein is one of them. So you said that vegans tend to be lighter. And so our bones aren't as dense. Is, is that a problem? Well, yeah. And so if you look at, um, if you look at BMIs of individuals, vegans consistently come up as having the lowest BMIs. And in fact, in the Adventist Health Study too, we were the only uh, group, dietary group, that was within the healthy BMI range. Even the vegetarians were above the mm -hmm. healthy BMI range and the omnivores even more so. And so because our bodies tend to be, um, you know, we have, we're, we have lower BMI, so we're leaner and lighter, lighter people have higher risk of osteoporosis. Do we have more accidents? Are we breaking more bones? No, no. If you look at the studies, a lot of the studies show that, you know, we have a higher risk for, for we have a higher fracture risk slightly but only in certain circumstances. So only if we have a BMI below a certain point. So the really skinny vegans have a higher risk. Uh -huh. um, and now, and, and for example, I can give you an example myself. I don't consider myself a skinny vegan. I'm, I'm five foot two and 110 pounds. I'm a very sort of normal weight for my height. Um, but I am very um, fitness conscious. So I'm strong. I do exercise on a regular basis, including weight-bearing exercise. And I haven't had my bone density done for quite a long time, probably 10, 12 years. But when I had it done in my 50s, my bone density was off the chart on, on the high end. It was, you know, when you think about osteoporosis, it's like two and a half standard deviations below what we're aiming for. Mine was two and a half standard deviations above <laughs> what, what would have been normal for my age. And so I think the point being here is that it is absolutely possible to be vegan and have very strong bones. But it, it, I've always been conscious of my, my intake of calcium, vitamin D, of, you know, I'm, I'm very, I eat a very nutrient dense diet. I eat enough protein and I do enough exercise. And exercise is kind of like the, the thing that tells your bones to stay strong. When you're you're stressing your bones, you're telling your bones they need to stay strong. And, and so it, it's a, you know, it's a lot, it's a variety of, I guess it's a multifactorial disease. It's not just about calcium. It's not just about protein. It's not just about one thing. It's, it's, it's about lifestyle, really. And the exercise has to be varied too. It is extremely important, extremely important. Right, because runners can have osteoporosis because that's the only thing they're doing. Yes, and and so I would say add more, add you know some some resistance training to your routine. 
Right. And uh, that's that's an important point. Yeah. Thank you for that. And and the other thing is that we can't have strong bones without strong muscles. They work together, right? Oh, absolutely. They work together. Very, very important point as well. Yeah. So it's frustrating when you get a, a, a bad score on your bone density and the doctor says, you know, eat more calcium. But it's like you said, it's multifaceted. There's much more it to is. it. And, and calcium, I think that's another thing that, that's worth mentioning because a lot of vegans don't get ad adequate calcium. In, in North America, we tend to do better than they do in Europe. So Epic Oxford, for example, the studies there, uh, calcium intakes were not good. Um, whereas in North America, in the Adventist Health Study 2, uh, calcium average intakes were over 900 milligrams a day in the vegans. Uh, so that, that's really good. That's very close to the RDA. Uh, so there's a difference. And the difference, I think, adds up to partly, we have a lot of uh, fortified non-dairy milks available that have you know, really high amounts of, of calcium, it makes it very easy to meet the RDA when you're using those kinds of foods and eating tofu and eating, you know, foods that have calcium added in addition to whole plant foods. I want to read some lines from the book that are on this subject that I thought were really interesting from page 96. A key to strong bones, protein provides the matrix in which calcium and other minerals are embedded. That's fascinating. Calcium provides structure and hardness. The recommended dietary allowance is 1,200 milligrams of calcium per day for women 50 plus years old and men 70 plus and 1,000 milligrams for men 50 to 70. Vitamin D improves absorption and retention of calcium. Our intake should maintain serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels of at least 20 nanograms per milliliter. And weight-bearing exercise stimulates bones to hold on to their minerals. Muscle strength also protects us against falling and breaking bones. That's all very important. It is, yes. Right there <laughs> in a nutshell. Well. I, I never knew or I never read that the bones to hold on to the minerals. I never, I never heard it phrased that way, but I'm not and, a dietitian. And, and bones, people think of them as being so static, but they're not, they're living tissues. And so there, things are happening in the bones all the time. Excellent. The other thing is you, you reviewed a number of supplements that might help athletes gain muscle. That's a kind of a fascinating subject because it's a huge market. Supplements are oh, big, huge, huge. evil <laughs> market. Yeah. And there really aren't many, if any, that we need to consume. Can you cover that a little bit? Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I would say probably the, the three, well, the four biggies are, are protein powders, um, creatine, beta-alanine, and, and branched-chain amino acids are super, super popular with athletes. For the regular Joe who goes into the gym every day even, or every second day or whatever it is, we don't, we don't need these things. Um, for elite athletes who are trying to get that, that edge, you know, that, that little bit of edge, some of these supplements um, may be advantageous. And so creatine, for example, is, is one supplement that, that evidence suggests um, 
you know, may provide advantages. And, and creatine helps with those sort of short bursts of high intensity activities. And it can also help with strength and muscle mass. And, um, you know, creatine comes from animal products, although, you know, it's not in plants, um, but we can make it ourselves. But tissue levels do tend to be significantly lower among plant-based eaters. And so, you know, there's some evidence that, that vegans may actually um, benefit more than omnivores by taking creatine. And so there's a very specific protocol for taking it, um, you know, the, and, and so you need, you need to be working with someone or really researching it to make sure you're not, you're not overdoing, um, you know, you can get fluid retention and cramps and nausea and different things from taking too much or, you know, taking it in the, in the wrong ways. And then, you know, beta alanine and BCAAs, there's probably less evidence than there is for creatine, but beta alanine is one of two amino acids that you need to, to um, make carnosine. And carnosine is, um, you know, it, it can help with the reduction of sort of the lactic acid buildup in the body. And so again, it, it, there's plant-based eaters have lower levels than omnivores and some, especially endurance athletes, there may be um, uh, some advantages for some people. So again, you can take too much, a very specific protocol. And then the branch chain amino acids, again, you know, for endurance athlete studies, haven't really shown a lot of enhanced performance with these supplements. Um, but for, for strength athletes, um, there's some evidence that it, it may help delay fatigue and and you know things like that. So it may may provide some advantage. I have had athlete friends who have used it and found it to be helpful. So so for serious elite competitive athletes, there there may be a role for some of these things. Uh, for the average you know person who's physically fit and trained, I really don't think they're necessary and may may potentially be um, harmful if you're not taking them properly, et cetera. Okay, everybody. So if you're reading some athlete's blog that's telling you to take all of these supplements and usually because they want to sell them and profit from them, listen to Brenda. Brenda is the source you trust. Okay, before we go to the environment, I just want to talk about pregnancies. You write, as a bonus, uh, they discovered several potential advantages of plant-based pregnancies. Mothers who consume 100% plant-based diets have fewer cesarean deliveries, less postpartum depression, lower rates of neonatal and maternal mortality. Plant-based diets protect against preeclampsia, pre-pregnancy, obesity, and exposure to chemicals that can damage DNA. This sounds like if you're having a baby, you'd want to be eating plant-based. <laughs> It, you know, I mean, and again, people get so concerned about being plant-based uh, if they're pregnant because they don't want to miss out on EPA and DHA and they want to get enough protein and, you know, just all of these things and choline comes up as an issue. And so there are all sorts of things that, that you know, people get really worried about um, that they might not get enough of from plants, but generally uh, if you... It, you know, obviously you need to meet nutritional requirements, but if you eat a, um, you know, reasonably well-balanced plant-based diet and you're including your legumes, 
and you're including, I would say, do include a prenatal supplement. Make sure that prenatal supplement has in it iodine, choline, uh, those two can fall short sometimes in, in uh, plant-based diets. And so a little extra of those, and of course, iron is always, it doesn't matter if you're omnivore or, or vegan, um, you need extra iron during pregnancy. So that'll be part of your prenatal supplement. But, and, and your, your protein requirements increase by about 50% uh, from, they go from about you know, 0.8 to 1.1 during pregnancy and 1.3 during lactation. So it's a, you know, approximately a 50% increase. So you do need more protein, but it's, it's, again, it's, you're looking at about 70 or 80 grams a day. And with the calorie increase in pregnancy, uh, it's not that difficult to achieve, but yes. And I love you that you read that, uh, you know, all of the advantages in terms of preeclampsia and, and, and even, you know, risk of, of complications and, and the amounts of, it's so interesting if you look at the studies on the amount of contaminants in breast milk and so forth. Um, vegans really are at an advantage in that regard, which can be an incredible gift to a baby. So um, definitely people don't have to worry uh, about doing a vegan pregnancy. There, there are some wonderful perks to a vegan pregnancy. I remember reading quite some time ago about women's breast milk and how it varies between omnivore, vegetarian, and vegan, and the contaminants that are in women's breast milk. And it gets better as a vegetarian and better as a vegan. And I think that's a great segue to move over to Corey and talk about the reasons why it's beneficial to the environment for our planet, but also to our health. I mean, we can start with uh, our mother's breast milk. Where is all that contamination coming from? Oh, goodness. Well, the contamination can come from a wide range of sources, including growth hormones, uh, perhaps the kinds of pesticides we use for animal feed crops. Um, so certainly from a variety of different sources. As we're on the subject of milk, I also like talking about plant milk. And I talked with mm. Vasanto earlier about plant milks. And you have this great chart in your book listing all the different milks and the grams of protein. And my choice has always been soy milk, which I discovered is a winner with protein. But when we talk about the environment, a lot of people have been slamming almond milk and how almonds are so water intensive and, and how they're not a good choice. And maybe you could enlighten us a little bit about water use and animal products and plant products, where almonds might fit in there, if you know, and enlighten yeah, us. Of course. Well, thanks for the question. Certainly nuts are uh, one of the higher um, users of water in the plant-based category. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, however, when, when we compare the use of, for example, soy milk or even almond milk, cashew milk, some of the other nut milks, in comparison with animal-based foods and protein sources, it's still relatively low on the scale. And so, and, and I'll just give you an example here. So of course, there's quite a bit of almond production in California, and that gets this huge bad rap for draining the Columbia Basin of water, right? Well, a study came out not all that long ago, um, and it showed it, it went through all of the different water user, 
usages in the in the western United States, that entire region, especially along the Colorado River. But it, it took into account all of the western United States and asked, well, where what are the biggest water users? And the study concluded saying that animal feed, specifically for cattle, and dairy cows are included in there, right, um, is the driver of fish endangerment and water shortages in the Western United States. Mm. And so when we think about dairy milk, well, what are the dairy cows being fed? Well, of course, there's alfalfa. There's all these other crops that are going into that. And so when we really examine, should we be getting that uh, food source directly from the plants or should we be feeding it to animals and then drinking their milk, you know? So, so certainly, uh, Plant-based milks, in my perspective, are, are one of the lower impact foods when we're looking at milk in general. And just surveying water usages across the Western United States, it makes that very, very clear. So certainly almonds get a bad rap. Um, a couple other things, other kinds of nuts get a, soy gets a bad rap, you know, but uh, we could address all those points if you like. Absolutely. But I'm just thinking when you were talking about the animal feed and how water intensive it is, I remember reading about alfalfa and how we ship it to China. So not only are we using our water here, but we're shipping the product somewhere else. We're not even using all of it here. It's it's nuts. So let's That's talk about right. nuts. That, I, I really love that you brought this point up because it's all, we often never even hear about this. We talk about raising cattle and raising livestock, eating local, all these things. But what is often missed in this conversation is there's this huge industry of animal feed. And we're shipping animal feed all over the place. Like I live here in British Columbia and we see all these little local ranches spread throughout the province and it makes it seem like this very humble, small ranching operation. But those cows only live, that's only one step in the supply chain of cattle. And this goes for all the animals. I mean, chickens are huge consumers of soy, for example. But that's just one step in, in the supply chain. Next thing they do is they auction it off. Okay, so they auction it off to feedlot operations. And feedlot operations, in order to be economical, must have economies of scale. So these are massive operations where 95% of the cows in BC actually end up in Alberta, the next province over, to be fed. And this also makes those small ranching operations economical because once they auction them off to this feedlot, they could gain weight really, really fast, right? And that weight gain provides that economic benefit. Well, these feedlots in, in Alberta, well, they're getting their feed from British Columbia and the Northeast. They're getting feed from all over the prairies here. And, and then, so they feed these cattle and all other kinds of animals we consume. Um, these big, huge crops, typically large monocultures, and Unearth did this great study looking at, with Greenpeace, did this great study looking at um, pesticide use and found that these animal feed operations are actually driving hazardous pesticides, but that's a different conversation altogether. Um, so we're taking all, all of these food crops and uh, shipping them to these concentrated animal feeding operations. And then we're shipping them back to BC or shipping them to wherever they came from, right? All neatly packaged and um, after slaughter. But the feed 
crop industry is huge. We're sending feed all across the world. Brazil is shipping feed all across the world as well. I mean, they're clearing the Amazon for pasture for grazing cattle and growing soy and then shipping that off to who knows where <laughs> all across the world. So yeah, it's a huge background industry that that's largely outside of the public view. So I, I'm really happy that you brought that up. It drives me insane. Now, some people, some privileged people will say that they're going to consume grass-fed beef, grass-fed yeah. meat, and why that is better. And can you talk about why that's really a fantasy? Yeah. I think it's a fantasy. I think it I think it's a fantasy <laughs> as well. So of course there's trade-offs. Sure. You know, if you eat entirely grass-fed beef, which is very actually rare, because all all beef is grass-fed. They all <laughs> eat grass for a great portion of their lives before going to a feedlot. And in fact, in the northern hemisphere where I am, it's impossible to to have grass-fed beef be fully grass-fed because what do they eat in the winter when it's covered in snow right well you have to have hay and legumes and all this other stuff so in the winter they're feeding but but yeah sure there there are some parts of the world perhaps in the southern u.s you can you could potentially have grass-fed beef which is much more expensive of course the feedlots make beef much more economical but there's trade-offs there right there's a trade-off in land use so the cows are going to have to graze a wider area of land and they produce more greenhouse gases. They live longer. Mm. Grasses aren't very digestible, not as digestible as grains and so forth. So there is, there's an environmental trade-off there. Sure. You're not putting as much pressure on those animal feed crops, but there's more pressure on the land and it's generating more greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you know, there's a animal agriculture, this whole livestock industry, they'll give you a lot of arguments about why grazing cattle is good for pasture, right? And this is a conversation that really, really touches me in the heart because when we're talking about grazing cattle on pasture or range, they'll say, well, this is marginal land, right? This is marginal <laughs> agricultural land that couldn't be used otherwise. Right. And I somewhat take events to that because when they're talking about pasture, what we're talking about is grasslands, some of the most threatened, beautiful, misunderstood and ecologically valuable ecosystems on planet Earth where cattle, not native to North America, exist almost ubiquitously. And in doing so, they're changing plant communities, they're altering habitat, they're impacting burrowing animals, birds, riparian areas, water quality, other ecologically and culturally important values. But much of the grasslands, by the way, has been seeded with non-native grass species for grazing purposes. So here, I actually have a little story about this. Um, at my last annual grand meeting for the Professional Agrologist Association in my region, we hired an indigenous speaker. And after her speech, someone mm -hmm. asked her about traditional food sources. And she talked about how Indian potato was a very culturally valuable food source. She went on to say that Indian potato is scarce these days, that where cattle graze, Indian potato disappears. So mm -hmm. after the presentation, actually one of my favorite people in the world who's a comes from a ranching family, came up to me knowing my position on cattle ranching and 
She looked at the floor and looked up at me with big puppy dog eyes and, you know, said, but it's such a big resource, the grasslands. And so the argument goes, yeah, it's, it's such a big resource. Therefore, we should use it. Well, in my personal view that, you know, it's, it's, an actually, it's actually a drain on resources because of, you know, the crop uh, industry, right? The animal feed crop industry. Um, but why exploit a resource just because it exists? I mean, as it exists, even without exploitation, it provides a resource. It provides ecological services such as water filtration, carbon sequestration, wildlife habitat, traditional food sources, right? Cultural identity. Um, it's a resource drain as, you know, in the United States, for example, there's enough crops to feed everyone 4,500 calories a day in corn and grains, right? which is largely fed to livestock. That's how we make ranching economical, you know, through allocating heavily subsidized cropland and freshwater resources very inefficiently. What I think we should be doing in North America is improving the diversity of plant foods or agrodiversity, which is a part, as the United Nations likes to call it, it's a part of biodiversity and make that available to people. And some will also argue that you know, grasslands need to be grazed for ecological health and cattle provide this service, right? And and it's true, right? Grasslands need to be grazed. But here, I kind of, I have to reject the premise entirely. Essentially, what this scheme proposes is to replace native wild grazing animals, bison in the Great Plains, for example, with cattle who have different preferences, behaviors, migratory patterns, and ecological impacts. And then we launch massive campaigns to destroy natural wildlife, like prairie dogs, wolves, cougars, bears, elk, and other species who compete with and cause economic losses to ranchers. Then we take that biomass of cattle, we remove it entirely from the landscape, all the function of that biomass, the nutrients therein, and divert it to our dinner plates and eventually wastewater treatment plants or not before discharging them into our water bodies, removing that organic matter from the land. And this is what's happened. Historically, before Europeans arrived, North America was home to 30 to 60 million bison. Now there's around 30,000. North America today is home to over 100 million cattle. That's United States and Canada. I think Canada has over 10 million, United States over 90 million. Reintroducing bison would threaten the cattle ranching industry as they mm -hmm. compete for grass and draw in natural predators, which they don't want. We're literally replacing wildlife with livestock at staggering intensities. In terms of biomass, livestock alone outweigh all land mammals 30-fold. So are cattle providing an ecological service of grazing ecosystems? Yeah, sure. But in doing so, they're stealing that ecological niche from the animals who co-evolved with the grasslands since time immemorial. So I find that whole argumentation fairly lackluster. And it's not sustainable. Not sustainable. Yes. I remember reading too about grazing cattle that as they move around and they get near the banks of rivers and streams, they start eating there and degrading the banks and degrading 
the environment for other living beings it's not a resource to be used by cattle it's a resource to be protected and that's right so not only are we draining you know polluting the water through animal feed crop through pollution from those feed crops but actually grazing cattle being so ubiquitous can have a variety of different impacts on riparian health on the stream banks of the waterways so some notable impacts to the stream banks are a reduction in plant mass right which shade streams and creeks providing better habitat for fish who are very sensitive to heat right because the more heat you bring into the water system the less dissolved oxygen and so forth are there which for example salmon and trout are very sensitive to um, another one you know, and it, it actually is different in different types of riparian ecosystems, different types of streams, but some of the most consistent is that reduction in biomass. And depending on how many cattle you have in and around your stream, it really degrades that the structural integrity of the stream bank, right? And so it exposes those soils that make stream banks stable, you know, those root structures and so forth. Um, by putting that additional pressure on them and trampling that plant mass. So it, it causes some soil degradation impacts to the soil. Uh, and that causes sedimentation into the stream banks, right? The sands, the silts, and so forth. And it goes into there and it sort of um, disrupts the water, right? It, it doesn't make for better water health when you have a lot of sedimentation into those streams. Um, so those are some of the significant ones. In some circumstances and areas, you'll see lower reductions in the richness and diversity of macro invertebrates, which are these little insects that you'll find in the streams that uh, mm. fish feed on, right? So it can impact, you know, all kinds of different ecological values in and around streams. Some different grazing management practices can reduce those impacts. And so a lot of studies that show positive grazing impacts will, will show these really great grazing systems that are very low in intensity. But we've got to understand that there's economic incentives to turn away from those grazing practices, right? It's the tragedy of the commons that we see right now. <laughs> it's really difficult. Ranchers are already struggling. It's not a very right. e economically viable business to begin with, right? You see a lot of very wealthy people who are buying the bigger ranches and they too, they see losses, but it's that lifestyle of living on the range, you know, mm -hmm. with your horses and cattle. So already I, I feel like this industry is on a lifeline. They're surviving off of taxpayer funding right off of the subsidies we provide off of the subsidized water use they get off of the cheap land that they've acquired in the past and public lands that they're able to graze and so forth subsidized feed for the livestock at the feedlot and so forth so now also we we compensate ranchers when a cougar or bear attacks a cow right we'll, we'll right. compensate them there it's compensation everywhere because you know, they are an industry on a lifeline. Yeah. And so I wonder in this capitalist society, why are we giving handouts to failing to a failing industry? I, I don't understand that. I don't either. And everything you've said is just brilliant. I wonder when you go to conferences in your field as an agrologist, 
Are there other people like you? Do you get a lot of pushback? Yeah. I mean, I know how it is with medical doctors that are plant-based and dietitians, but I'm just curious about your field. Yeah, of course. That's a really good question. I'm an outlier in my field, (laughs) for sure. So many people in my field come from ranching backgrounds. And so livestock is integral to the culture of my profession, right? And so they're always looking for ways to improve livestock grazing. And they'll use those examples of, well, we're providing an ecological service of grazing. We can improve the grasslands and so forth through thoughtful grazing practices. It's just, that's not what I see out there in the field all that often, right? Like there are strategies that could be helpful. And, you know, I just don't see that too often. So, um, but yeah, I'm an outlier. I get pushed back at you know, if my colleagues heard me, and I'm sure they they will, I'll, I'll get a talking to, and that's okay because it's a discussion I want to have, right? I want right. to continue this dialogue, and I certainly have no disrespect for them, and have that much respect for people in my field, and a lot of those ranchers. The girl I talked about earlier who came up to me talking about the big resource of the grass, and she's one of my favorite people, and I love having conversations with her. She comes from a very good place, just wants to do what's right, right? And I think that's what a lot of them want to do is just, they want to do what's right. And so they've justified animal agriculture. So we just have two clashing perspectives. And I think that makes for a really interesting dialogue. In fact, I don't want to live in a world where I don't have opposing views, where I can't be challenged. So I think it's a, it, it's an interesting field to be in from, from my side of <laughs> So for many people, ranchers and farmers, this is their livelihood. And for some of them, they've been doing it for generations and they can't imagine doing anything else. Do you have recommendations about how they might transition to using their land and using their business to do something other than raising animals and destroying the environment? Mm. Well, certainly Miyoko, (laughs) you know, from Miyoko's Creamery, I think she was going around the world and teaching people how to grow nuts and and transition away from um, uh, dairy cows. I think that's a really interesting approach. It's really difficult here, right? So like I, I was mentioning earlier, it's it's not that economically, there's not a lot of economic incentive to get into ranching, <laughs> for example. And so um, I think that's a good argument, but a lot of the value is in the ranch itself. And so the ranches themselves are very valuable. And if And if it doesn't provide that economic resource of, forage for cattle, well, what value will it hold? I see a lot of ranchers, they harvest hay, for example, and I'd love to see them trying to do legumes, right, and provide legumes for people. I think that they can provide all kinds of ecological services through rewilding the grasslands, and I would hope the people would be on board to provide an economic incentive through tax incentives or something along those lines to encourage ranchers to rewild and really bring back the biodiversity, the wild predators, um, and facilitate that. And I see them as having an extremely important role in this, right? Because ownership of our grasslands has to be taken into account. They're not all public grasslands. There's so much grasslands that's privately owned. And so how do we incentivize people who have ownership of these precious resources to do what's right with it? 
And I think that's a challenge um, for sure. That's that's a future challenge and a challenge I see right now. And I think it's a conversation. We need to explore the options, but I certainly don't have the answer. It's a, my answer certainly needs to be challenged. Well, we could go on talking about this all day, but we don't have all day and we're actually <laughs> at the end. So I just wanted to ask one more question. I know there's a lot of wonderful recipes in the book, Plant Powered Protein. Corey, do you have a favorite or is there a favorite that your mom makes that you like? Oh my goodness. They're all my favorite. You know, each and every recipe was tested so deeply through so many different people. We all tested the recipes. Then we have recipe testers. I tend to gravitate towards the desserts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, certainly my mom makes the best darn desserts ever. Her snacks after dinner are to die for. To um, live so, for. To live for. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> to Certainly to live for. Yeah. So check those out. I, I certainly love the desserts in the book. Excellent. So those brownies are really good. <laughs> okay. Well, Corey and Brenda, do you want to add anything before we go? Corey uh, makes me so proud. Uh, he's just always been such a such a, a a person of passion, and he's studied so hard and come so far. And and he is also he says about my cooking, he is a far better cook than I am. <laughs> he is an extraordinary cook. Some of the best meals I've ever had were prepared by Corey. So, but anyway, the recipes in the book are really pretty fun. And I love the gado gado. I, I, you know, there's so many good ones, but anyway, the, yeah, I, I hope people enjoy them. And we, we absolutely insisted that the book be full color. So, you know, we've got a lot of nice pictures to go along with the recipes as well, which is pretty fun. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. This has been a delight. I'm so glad, Brenda, that you're on the planet and all of the things that you've created, not just all this information about nutrition, but also Corey. Oh, thank, thank you, you. so much. <laughs> this was so much fun. And I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Okay, thank you. This was part two of our program on plant-powered protein. If you missed the first part where I spoke with Vasanto Molina, please take a listen to that. Get the book. This way you'll have all of this vital information at your fingertips whenever you need to inform someone about plant-based protein. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to It's All About Food. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send me comments and questions to info at realmeals.org. Everybody have a delicious week. Thank you.